right before you get too comfortable, I invite you to stand to honor the word of God as we look at this text, the final two verses of the letter to, of Jude, Jude 24 and 25. This great doxology which says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. And all God's people say, Amen. You may be seated. The closing two verses of this little letter that we know as Jude serve as one of the most profound and great doxologies of all scripture. A doxology, may I remind you, is nothing short of a hymn of praise to God. When we stop to consider why we ought to praise God, we ought immediately be struck with the reality of our salvation. That if you know Christ, you should be struck with this notion that God, the God of the universe, that God, the holy God who knows no sin, would have mercy on wretched sinners like you and me. That he calls us out of the despair of both this life, knowing that he works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes, and also out of the eternal darkness of the torments of hell that every one of our sins deserve. And in that process, he transfers us from the domain, from the power and the authority of darkness. And he transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of joy, the kingdom of life, the kingdom that belongs to our Lord Jesus Christ. And why do we consider this? Because when you rightly consider the greatness of your salvation, it gives both confidence and hope in this life, knowing that whatever this life throws at us, we have a sure future. We have a blissful future in the presence, in the standing, before our great God and creator. There is a sense in which all of this can sound too good to be true. How can that be? And as the old saying goes, if it sounds too good to be true, what do they say? It probably is too good to be true. Now, I found that there's exceptions to that rule. And the greatest exception is found in the gospel. There is an exception. The operative word in that statement, it's, if it sounds too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. The operative word is probably because there are exceptions. They may sometimes seem far and in between, but if you're looking for an exception today, I tell you, look no further than Jesus Christ and the salvation that he offers you if you will confess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead as your substitute for sin. When it comes to the promises of God, beloved, regardless of how overwhelmingly wonderful, how inconceivable they may seem to us, those promises are sure, and God is faithful to carry them out to the very letter. For anyone who has come to understand the sinfulness of sin, the deceitfulness of sin, the unrelenting stalking of sin to consume our souls in despair, defeat and destruction that any one of us would even be saved 
should be the marvel of marvels. You shouldn't be so concerned that God saved the person across the aisle from you today. You should be concerned and wonder, how did God save a wretch like me? Truly, there is no one righteous, not even one, so says the word of God. There are none among the children of Adam that have in and of themselves even sought the Lord out, who is both their creator, to whom then they owe their lives and allegiance, as well as their redeemer, to whom they owe what we call the new life, this new creaturehood of devotion to him. And because of sin that so easily besets every person, there ought to be this natural question that comes up in our minds and that question is, who then can be saved? If sin is as deceitful as it is, as destructive as it can be, and it is the experience of every single person on this earth, then who can be saved? If left to our own devices, we know first to reconcile ourselves to this wondrous holy God, and then even if we could do that, how do we maintain that? Because we get tired, and we get weak, and we grow weary, and we give up. If God left us to our own devices, according to Scripture, no one could stand before the holy God. Not one person would have standing with God. There is absolutely, positively, irrevocably, unalterably not a chance that even one fallen human being would ever be able to present him or herself to God. I'd have you recall an incident with me, one that you're probably familiar with, when Jesus encountered a rich young ruler in Matthew 19. There Jesus told this wealthy, affluent, upstart a young man, he says in verse 23, truly, amen, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some of you have heard all sorts of interpretations of what this means. Let me just get to the bottom line. Whatever that means, Jesus says it's impossible for anyone to ever save themselves by their own doing. You can't shove a camel through the eye of a needle. You can't do anything necessary by which you might save yourselves. We recognize that for the Jews of Jesus' day, wealth was actually an indication that God had favored you. If you had money, it must be because you were right with God. And so if anyone were to be saved, it would be the rich man. And Jesus says, hey, you might as well try to do this impossible task because you can't do that either and you can't save yourselves. Well, how do we know that this is the idea that Jesus was speaking of? Well, consider the reaction of the disciples in verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they weren't just astonished. You know, in, in English, you're not supposed to use the word very. I mean, we use the word very all the time, but in writing, it's just a superfluous word. But here, the Greek text, inspired by the Spirit, says they weren't just astonished. They were very astonished. They were perplexed. They were trying to get their heads wrapped around this idea, and they asked the question, if the rich can't get in because that doesn't mean they've merited something from you, then what do they say? Who, then who can be saved? We're all wretched. We're all in the most worst condition we can ever imagine ourselves. And Jesus is saying, yep, that's right. Because until you get there, you have no 
no understanding of what salvation is. They understood Jesus to say that there was nothing a person could do to either merit salvation or maintain their standing with God. So then who can be saved? Or better put, who can save themselves if not those of these means? And what does Jesus say to them in verse 25 or 26? I love the statement. And looking at them, what else is Jesus going to do? Stare up at the sky? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, so he's looking them in the eye, and he says what? With people. This. What's this? Salvation. With people, salvation is impossible. Give up. But with God, all things are possible. How many of you have seen that plaque somewhere, you know, using this verse? What's it talking about? You can't save yourself. It's only a God thing. The point of salvation is that from start to finish, it is the work of God. And while the disciples were concerned in this instance with meriting salvation, the concern of the readers in our text in Jude were more along the lines, as we said last week, if sin, is, if sin in general is so deceitful and the sin of apostasy, of falling away from the faith, is so sinister and so prevalent as even to be found having crept into the church, how can anyone ever hope to maintain their salvation? And to this question, we must answer with the words of Christ. With people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And this is what Jude lays out for us in this short but powerful doxology, this hymn of praise, by which he informs the readers that their hope is in the Lord, not in themselves. In Jude 24 and 25, we find seven profound statements about our God, statements that are designed to quiet the soul, to give hope to the heart, to stimulate the mind towards godly thoughts and behaviors. Now, last week, I do have to make this correction. I told you that there were eight, and I showed you eight, and now there's seven. It's because I got to study some more, and I decided to combine one of those uh, points into the other, and seven is like the number of perfection, and so now my sermon is perfect. <laughs> we'll see. So there are the seven points. Last week, we laid the foundation for these seven statements concerning our God, noting that salvation is never a matter of what the sinner does, but what God does for the sinner. Let me say that again because I missed the word. It's the, the salvation is never a matter of what the sinner does for God, but what God does for the sinner. And we looked last week at the first point of God's protection, noting that it begins in verse 24. Now to him, God the Father, who is able to keep you from stumbling. We noted that God is able. God is powerful. God is omnipotent, more than capable of finishing that which he began in the saving of his people. Those who are his beloved, as we see in verse 2, we are the beloved in God. We are the beloved in verse 17, beloved in verse 20. These who are the beloved will be brought to completion by the effort of God and God alone. We see this taught by the Apostle Paul in those very familiar words of Philippians 1.6. For I am confident, I am fully persuaded of this very thing. There's that word very again. That he who began a good work in you 
will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's not about what the sinner does for God. It's about what God does for the sinner. Those whom God calls, he justifies. He makes righteous even as his son, Jesus Christ, is righteous. And those whom he justifies, he glorifies. He brings them himself into full conformity to the righteous image of Christ, Romans 8.30. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, Peter explains it this way. Blessed, glory be, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us, not you did it, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Who are the you? Verse 5. You who are protected, not by what you've done, not by what you've secured. Protected by what? The power, the dunamis, the ability, the capability, the awesome power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Even so, Lord Jesus, come and let it be revealed. Beloved, this is the God who is able to keep those whom he has called to himself from stumbling, from the ultimate penalty their sins deserve, from eternal condemnation in hell. There is more than ample reason in that one statement to give praise to God, is there not? There's more there to comprehend, to, to build a doxology of praise. And that's how Jude begins. Now to him who is able to keep you and protect you from stumbling. But there's more. God's presentation, as verse 24 continues, and to make you stand, he's able to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. Oh, there's so much in there. Not only is God able to protect you from sin's full and final judgment, but God is able, let's put it positively now, rather than stumbling, God is able to make one who was a wretched sinner who should melt in the presence of God stand in the presence of his glory. And not trembling, but how? With great joy. Here Jude speaks of the believer standing before God. And notice again, this standing has absolutely nothing based in what the sinner does. It's to him who is able to make you stand. God makes the sinner able to stand up before him. Because of the believer's position in Christ, he is enabled to stand, get this, in the very presence of the glory of the Lord God Almighty, the one who created heavens and earth, the one who, who uh, is so glorious that even when Moses was head in the cleft of the rock, his face was burnt with a divine sunburn, and uh, it bothered people when they saw it. This glorious God says, you can stand there, and we won't need divine sunglasses when we see him. We will be robed in the righteousness of Christ, and we will, be in, we will be presented before him. Now, there's a very fearful statement that's made in uh, uh, Psalm 130, verse 3. You've probably heard this before, right? If you, Yahweh, you, Lord, should mark iniquities, if you would begin to count our iniquities against us. Now, just stop and think that for a moment. 
How many of you would like to have a list of all of your iniquities? And if God starts marking them off, saying, Gina, here's yours, here's yours, here's, uh, here's uh, you know, Ken's, here's yours, yours, yours. If God does that, who can have standing in God's presence? Zero, not a no one. Oh, Lord, who could stand? If you just stop right there, we're in a wretched condition. But praise God, it doesn't stop there. Verse 4 says something miraculous, something wonderful. But no one can stand if you mark our iniquities. But there is forgiveness with you. You are the one who will divorce us from our sins, separate them as far as the east is from the west. And when we stop to consider that glorious salvation, why does he do it? That you, God, may be feared. You may be trembled before in awestruck reverence and worship that you would have a, a, a mercy on a wretched soul like me. Why ought we to... Praise God with this hymn of praise, our doxology, because he is able to make, he is able to present us, he is able to reassign sinners, those who had been rebels, those who are alienated from him, those who have been hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. He presents them before himself as redeemed saints. That phrase in the presence of speaks of coming up against or right beside or right before. You're coming right up against the glory of God. It's not at a distance anymore. It's not as we're going to see in a moment Isaiah trembling that he's ruined because he's seen the glory of God. This is embracing it. This is possessing it in the presence of it could be translated in the sight of. We can see it now. According to Jude, redeemed sinners are made to have standing in the very presence of, in the very sight of, right up against the glory of God himself. How can this be? How can sinners find themselves in the presence of a holy God? Because, beloved, God not only protects his own from the full and final penalty of sin, stumbling, as we saw. But he is also able to present them, to make them presentable before him. Notice how they stand before him. They stand blameless. Now, who did this? Who did this blameless? Did you do it? No, it's to him who is able to make you stand in his presence, able to make you stand how? blameless that word blameless as many of you know means without spot without blemish without stain if you are in christ if you if you have believed on what he has done on the cross god will present you in his glorious holy presence as blameless not one spot there is no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus there is no fear. There is no shame. There is only the wonder of being draped in the righteousness of Christ. We read of this in Colossians 1.22 where Paul wrote, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you, to make you stand before him. How? 
holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Paul's like trying to figure this out too. And the word blameless isn't enough for him. You are not only blameless, you are holy. You are not only holy, you are without reproach. No one can point the finger at you and say, you do not deserve to be here. Because if they say that, you would say, you're right. But God is able. God is able to make me stand in his presence this way. Why ought we proclaim this doxology with Jude? Because if we are in Christ, we are blameless. And beloved, if you know anything about the God of Scripture, you know that the idea of being in his presence generally brought people into a state of fear, a state of panic, a state of shock. I mean, the children of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, and there's thunder and lightning going on, and they haven't even actually heard, uh, heard half of what Moses heard. And what are they saying? Moses, you go. You go and speak. Because if, if he comes down and talks to us, we're going to melt like wax. The prophet Isaiah, who was in his day, I don't know if you know this, Isaiah was probably one of the most righteous people that you could know. He was part of the royal court there in Jerusalem. He was a, a man of God. He loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you wanted an example of someone to follow, you could follow Isaiah. This was a man after God's own heart. And in the day that he encountered God, when he was made to have a vision of standing in the presence of the almighty, the trice holy God, how does he respond? Hey, it's about time you recognize me, God. Look how good I am. He cursed himself. He literally cursed himself and believed that he was about to die on the very spot in which God had revealed this to him. In Isaiah 6, 5, he says this, Woe is me, cursed am I. I am undone. I am being pulled apart. I am going to see pieces of myself flying everywhere because my eyes have laid hold of the Lord of glory. And he says, I don't deserve to be here. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, and I know that no sinner who sees God can stand but God. But God, you want your answer to, to any of your problems in this life, beginning with your salvation? I don't know how I can be saved. I don't deserve to be saved. I don't know how I could ever keep myself saved. But God. But God, through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, as an expression of his own mercy and grace, enables the person, causes the person to stand before his presence in this blameless state, one that brings no judgment, only acceptance. This is God's presentation. He presents you holy and blameless, redeemed sinners made righteous with the imputed righteousness of Christ. And what is to be the response? If you think about what God has done for you, what ought to be the response to those whom God has made enabled to stand in his presence blameless? There is to be what? Not just joy. What does it say? Great 
joy. Are you reading the same thing? You can't. Well, that's not there, right? It's in our text. Blameless with great joy. The word means exceeding joy, overflowing joy. The word joy comes from a word that means literally to jump with gladness. Some of you know I, um, I'm the raccoon whisperer, and I have a new baby raccoon that has hated my guts most of the last three or four months and not wanting anything to do with me. But a couple, about this last week, he's decided that I'm something pretty cool. The cats beat up on him. He wants to play with the cats, but he's decided I'm cool. And he started playing with me. And I can go there, and we have our little stand downs, and that little creature is so happy, he leaps for joy. That's the picture here. And when you see a raccoon, a baby raccoon, leaping around for joy, it's a delight. And this is what God, this is a picture. Y'all get to be baby raccoons. Y'all get to jump for joy because God has saved your soul. That's the idea. The same word is used to describe the yet-to-be-born baby of Elizabeth, who would become known as John the Baptist, when she heard news that her cousin Mary was to be the mother of the Messiah. In Luke 1.42, we read, For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. Same word. You are to leap, not in the womb, but you are to leap for joy because God has enabled you to stand in his presence. And so you should say, Oh, what glorious truth is this? All fear of judgment, all banishment for sin has been removed if you are in Christ. All that is left for the beloved is this. Start leaping for joy. We see such a response made by the crippled beggar at the gate called Beautiful. Upon being seized by Peter's hand, the beggar there was healed. What does the text say? You all, remember, you all sing this song when you were in Sunday school class, right? With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. The response that God will keep you from sin's final punishment and your response that God is presenting you in his presence, in all his glory, blameless, start leaping. It's like, uh, my knees hurt. So what? Start leaping for joy. When was the last time you expressed such an exceeding joy for the awesome blessing of being made to stand in God's holy presence as blameless? That is to be part of our doxology our hymn of praise. But there's more. We see next God's prominence. Notice in verse 25, to the only God, to the only God. Beginning in verse 25, we see more of who God is. Jude says to the, the only God, that is to God only or God alone, to the one and only God. There really are no other gods. There's all sort of so-called gods, but there's true one true living God. The Greek word for God, some of you know, is theos. We get our word theology, the study of God from it. The word theos literally means the mighty one or the supreme one. Depending upon the context in which it's used, theos was not used exclusively by the Greeks to speak of gods. It could be used to speak of any person, any man, any deity, anyone who had some kind of power or authority over you. 
while we tend to always associate theos with God, the God of the Bible, or perhaps as referring to the so-called lesser gods, this is not how Jude's readers would have understood it. The, the word theos was often used to refer to anyone who was in authority. They were regarded as mighty ones because of the power they wielded. So if theos could refer to any number of human or spiritual beings, Jude now comes along and says, whatever you might think about Caesar, whatever you might think about the Roman governors, whatever you might think about those who are local authorities over you, there's only one mighty one in your life. There's only one who does exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think, and it is God alone, the only true God. Who is this God? The only God is the Lord. The only God is Yahweh, the creator and sustainer of all things. The Lord himself makes this very declaration of his own prominence. In Isaiah 45, verse 5, the Lord says, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Beside me there is no what? God. I am God alone, the only God. Because he's the only true God, he's the only one to whom we are to give our praise and our glory. While Jude says the only God, he is not discounting that there may be other people and other beings that use that title. In 1 Corinthians 8, 5, Jude, uh, Paul makes the statement, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or, or, or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, he recognizes that. But by referring to Yahweh as the only true God, He's setting him apart. He's the incomparably sovereign one. He is the Lord most high. Calling him the only God is stating his all-encompassing authority. He's over all the other gods if they are gods at all. He's over all this. This is God's prominence. It's his position as Lord of all. It's interesting in the book of Revelation, what's the title given to Jesus? He is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords, that there are other kings, there are other lords, but when you compare them to God himself, they are nothing. All creatures must submit to his authority. Indeed, all, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Lord of lords. Let me ask a practical question. Does the Lord have this kind of prominence in your life right now? That he's before all others. He's more important than anything else that's in your life in this moment. We might say it differently. Do you assign such prominence to the Lord in his will in your life? Do you intentionally say, God, you are to have this priority, this prominence in my life. Do you and others see yourself as seeing to it that Jesus is coming to have first place in everything, which is the primary prominence in your life? Isn't that what Colossians 1.18, that Jesus would come to have what? First place in everything. Where does God's prominence fit into your life today? But there's still more. We see God's position to the only God, our Savior. Note the position that Jude assigns to this only God. He's called our Savior. Now, typically, we are programmed to think of our Savior as being the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
And yet it is true that all three persons of the Godhead play a role in the salvation of sinners. We know that God the Father has planned out our salvation. We sang about that earlier. We know God the Son secured our salvation on the cross. We know the Holy Spirit applies that salvation. The word Savior in the Greek speaks of the one who is the agent of salvation, the agent of bringing deliverance, the agent of rescue. This is the one who rescues, delivers, saves, and preserves. Again, while we normally associate the word Savior with Jesus, Jude here intentionally attaches it to God the Father. We see this done throughout Scripture. In fact, if you're reading through your, your Advent readings and such, in the Magnificat the, by Mary being pregnant with a holy child, what does Mary say in Luke 1.47? She says, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Now she's referencing God the Father because the child is in her at this moment. The Apostle Paul, in recounting the work of salvation to Titus, also refers to the Father as Savior in the very familiar words found in Titus chapter 3, verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for my, mankind appeared, he saved us. Isaiah 43, 11, the Lord makes clear, a clear statement saying, I, even I am Yahweh, and there is no what? There is no Savior beside me. And earlier in Isaiah 12, 2, the Lord said, uh, said, this is what the redeemed, this is what you and I who are saved are to say to him. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my what? my salvation. Do you, do you leap with great joy that the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth, is also your savior, the one through whom the divine plan and the collaborative efforts of the Godhead have redeemed your soul from the power, from the penalty, and one day from the very presence of sin? This is the position of your God. And you are to sing a hymn of praise, a doxology to the God who saves your soul. But there's more. We see God's power. Moving on in verse 25, it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord. While it can sometimes be confusing to think of God the Father as Savior, for that is the title we again most often associate with Jesus, it is nonetheless very true. For how did God the Father demonstrate himself to be the Savior? How is it that the Father saves us? He's the Savior. He did it, it says in our text, through Jesus Christ our Lord. He went through another agent, the second son, the second person of the Trinity. The word through in the Greek identifies uh, Jesus as the conduit through which salvation flows from God the Father now to the sinner. Jesus is the power of God. Jesus is the intermediary. Jesus is the mediator, he's called. Jesus is the great high priest. What's a priest do? He's the go-between, between God and man. That's the power. We cannot rightly speak of salvation if we do not speak at the same time of the agency or the power of the Lord Jesus Christ in that salvation. That God, the Father, saves, if I say it this way, he didn't save alone. He saved through his son, Jesus Christ, made applicable by God, the Holy Spirit. 
We see the same thing concerning the creation of the heavens and earth, do we not? In the Old Testament, with the very first words of the Bible, we find that it was who? God who created the heavens and the earth. <clears throat> but when we come to the New Testament, we find something interesting. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we find that Jesus is the agent the power through whom God created, God the Father created all things. We read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, in fact, God. He was in the beginning with God. Now notice what it says. All things came into being how? Through him. So this is that idea that Jesus is the conduit, the power by which God has created everything. And it says, and apart from him, apart from Jesus, nothing came into being that has come into being. So it is rightly said that God the Father created the heavens and the earth, and that Jesus created them for God the Father, and did so, the Father did, through the power, the agency of a son. The same is true for our salvation. God the Father is rightly called our Savior as he saves sinners. How? Through the power of his son, Jesus Christ, who is Savior. To deny any of these acts is to place yourself outside of biblical faith. 1 John 2.23 says, <clears throat> Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, and the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. We need to recognize this connection. There is no creation apart from Jesus. There is no salvation apart from Jesus. We find this link between the Father and the Son expressed in 1 Corinthians 1.30 and 31, where it says this, But by his, God the Father's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who, Jesus, became to us what? All of these things. God did it, and he did it how? God, through the wisdom of Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, because he's done it all. Indeed, Jesus Christ, in the salvation he secured, is good news, the gospel, which is also described as what? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. So I ask you, when was the last time you leapt with exceeding joy and proclaimed such a doxology of praise for what God has accomplished for you through Jesus Christ our Lord? <clears throat> but there's more. We're not done yet. We see God's prestige. We see this assigning of glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, as if God's protection isn't enough, as if God's presenting us blameless before him is not enough, as if the prominence of God is not glorious enough and the power of God is not sufficient enough. Jude sours upon God now for descriptions of prestige that only further sets him apart from all other beings. We'll note them very quickly. <clears throat> The first one is glory. Again, this is from the Greek word doxa. We get our word doxology. It's from the noun dokio, which means to assign a proper opinion or estimation of something. The glory of God is an expression of all that he is in his person. Everything about God all mixed together 
is his glory. His character, his power, his acts, when you read them through the Old Testament and the New Testament, you are beholding the glory of God. You remember the passage uh, in John where it says, And we beheld his glory. They were seeing the work of God in Jesus Christ, and they recognized it was a reflection of all that God is. The Old Testament word for glory is kabod. Ichabod means the glory has departed. Kabod refers to that which is described as heavy, that which is weighty, that which speaks of what is most important or honorable. To God, all glory, all importance, all significance is to be rendered. And so when we sing our hymn of praise, our doxology, it should be with this recognition of seeing as much as we can, as much as we can of God and proclaiming as much as we, can, as we can of God. That's his glory. But there's more, his majesty. The word for majesty begins with the prefix megas, mega. What does that mean? It means great. It means huge. It means big. And it speaks then of that which is exceedingly great or important. To ascribe majesty to God is to speak then of his preeminence. It is to see his dignity. It is to honor him as important. Why do we, we don't, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Why do we refer to kings and queens as what? Your majesty because they're seen as the highest dignitaries of their country, of whom they represent. They possess the most important role in overseeing the affairs of the people. And so when we refer to them as majesty, it's a recognition of their rank as being above all others. And when you ascribe majesty to God, you're saying, God, you are above all others, and I bow in reverence to you such as to be included in our doxologies to God. But there's more. Not only that, we see next dominion. I had to see how hot that was going to be. The word dominion, very quickly, it, it's interesting. It speaks of the very presence and significance of the force or strength possessed rather than the actual exercise of it. It's, it's just recognizing this one's got power. This one can do whatever this one wants to do. Dominion speaks of that kind of force that hasn't even necessarily been demonstrated yet. If you think about Rome, the Roman Empire was ruled by what's called the Pax Romana. The, the, the peace of Rome was established by the fact that there were soldiers everywhere. There was power ready to be exerted, but the power was just kind of sitting there. It didn't have to be used. It just kind of kept everything in order. God has that kind of dominion. We are to recognize he can do whatever he determines to do whenever he determines to do it because he has the power. He has the dominion, and he can demonstrate it. And then finally, <clears throat> we see the word authority. The word authority combines the ideas of both the ability to do something, for he is able to keep you from stumbling. He is able to make you stand in the presence 
of his glory, blameless with great joy. But what it adds to it is that you could say, well, what, who, who gave God the right to do that? And authority says he has the power and he has the right. If you're going to do it, you, gotta have the, you have to have the power to do it, and then do you have the right to do it? And that's what this is speaking of. He has the right to do it. No one can question him. It is interesting that a pagan king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar came to understand this truth. Consider his words in Daniel 4.35. He said this, All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him what? What have you done? What gives you the right? Who gives you the right? Because I am God. I am the God of glory. I am the God of, of, of power. I'm the God of dominion. I have that authority. The word authority was used to speak of a person's ability and their legal right to do something. God created us. He has the right to do this. If you see, if, if I see a person drive past me, at 50 miles an hour over the speed limit, the best thing I can do is kind of say, you know, what a foolish person. Probably not the words I would say, jerk, something like that, and then I'd have to repent. <clears throat> I could regard that person as being careless for driving 50 miles over the speed limit, but I have no authority to do anything about it. I can't chase him down and, and rent my car in front of him and say, stop. But if a police officer comes by, he has both what? The power and the authority to do it. Lights come on, and I'm making this assumption. I shouldn't assume when I'm preaching, but I, I'm going to ask my resident police officer. Somebody's going 50 miles over the speed limit. He's not just getting a ticket, right? He's going to jail, and you have the right to do that to him. That's authority. It speaks of God's right and ability to do all that he wants to over all creation without exception. No one can say, that doesn't apply to me. We are to give God glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord as an expression of praise for the salvation that he gives us and he keeps us in. But there's one more thing to consider. God's priority. <clears throat> If my voice makes it. <clears throat> so you're all doing it now. God's priority. Look at the end of verse 25. All that we're talking about is before all time and now and forever. So let it Jude closes with a triad of time. Did you notice this? A triad. Before all time, past, now, present, and forever future. He's reminding his readers that the God who is able to save, the God to whom belongs all the glory, has been, is now, and forever will be such a God. 
From eternity past to eternity future, he alone is God, our Savior, and he has priority then over all other things. All of earth's empires have waxed and waned. At one time, Egypt was glittering in the lap of luxury, but where is all their pomp and circumstance today? The great Assyrian Empire with its capital of Nineveh is now obsolete. The, the vast splendor and wonder that caused Nebuchadnezzar to boast in great arrogance, is this not Babylon the great which I have built? Where is that Babylon now? Where once the mighty and magnificent Persian Empire stood, where is it now? Where is the grandeur that once was Greece? Where is the Pax Romana that once controlled the Roman Empire? There was a time when Napoleon redrew the map of Europe. Where is that now? There was a time when Britain's flag flew across nearly one quarter of the world. But where is it now? All these glories are vanished. Time only pierces through the pomp and the pageantry and the power of men. Every earthly empire falls into decay, and the best that one can hope for is that historians remember their previous glories. The relics of those empires are collected, and you can go gaze upon them in museums. And I suspect if the Lord tarries, that will be true of the empire known as the United States. But God, God in his kingdom is before all time and now and forever. When Jesus comes again to establish his millennial kingdom, all the world will behold the glory, the majesty, the dominion, and the authority of God. And for this, we are to offer up our praise, of, our hymn of praise, our doxology. We have done so in the past. We are to do so in the present. And we will do so in the future. And to all of this, Jude ends with that one little word we're so familiar with. Amen. Amen. To say amen is a statement of confirmation. It is to agree with what has just been said. And amen is to be the response of the redeemed. When we hear the phrase, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, the right response isn't so. It's amen. It's amen. The idea of amen is let it be so. Truly let it be so. Dear believer, called of God, beloved in God the Father, kept for Jesus, when we understand what it is God has done for us in salvation, we will understand that we are eternally secure because of his love wrapped up in his own purpose and power. 
the teaching of the eternal security of the believer is rooted and grounded in God himself. The doctrine of the preservation of the saints by the power and the ability of God ought to bring us great peace, hope, and confidence. To be sure, you and I can never live up to who we are in Christ. But God always sees those who believe in Christ as in Christ, as in his righteousness, his perfection, his glory. So I ask you, are you in Christ today? Do you have this peace, this hope, this confidence that God has made you fit to stand in his presence? Not to come before him in shame, but to have confidence that you are blameless. And because of that, you have great joy. If you do, then you should say with Jude, you should offer with Jude a hymn of praise, this doxology. If not, then it's time to determine this day whom you will serve. Will you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Master? Will you confess him as your Savior and Redeemer? I pray that you will. Now to him who is able to keep you and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And God's people say, Amen. Father God, thank you for these truths. May they be true of our souls. Amen. <clears throat> like running out of voice, and now we get to sing.